So over the last, what has it been, six weeks, I think, we've been looking at this series called The Great I Am, and it's uh, seven definitive statements made by Jesus during his time on the earth, and uh, there's bold declarations using these sacred words of I am to illustrate that he is God, that he is the Messiah. And um, I did have a slide, but that's all right. But these are words that Jesus, Jesus said. They were highly blasphemous words, uh, especially to the religious Jews of the time. Uh, the Pharisees, they absolutely hated him for saying these sorts of things because he's claiming that he is God. And so every time that Jesus would make these kind of public demonstrative kind of claims like I am bread or I am the bread of life I am the way the truth and the life I am the light of the world uh, for the most part people loved him they liked what he was doing or at, at the very least they were intrigued by him and so I was going to ask what do you think this is the, is the I am statement that we're going to do today but it's pretty obvious now um, so this is one of the things that Jesus said, that I am the resurrection and I am the life. And that's kind of what we're going to look at today. So the religious people, they hated him for it. They absolutely loathed him. Um, it was almost like each of these events, each of these seven times where he's making these bold claims, it was like he was supplying them with like the brick and mortar in the next layer of in the next layer of building this huge fortress of hatred towards himself, this huge uh, siege that was going to eventuate in his death. And so it was like each of these moments was another step of Jesus walking down death row towards his execution. And it's deliberately planned in that way, because if you look at it from that angle, from that kind of perspective, uh, you can see that each moment was very carefully planned out it was mapped out by God. Because you think about Jesus, uh, Dad went on about this, I think, a few weeks ago, about how Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And uh, it's hard for us to kind of fully grasp the weightiness of that moment. Because <laughs> we weren't there. So we don't fully understand that context. We don't fully understand the culture, the language, at that time, we, don't, we, don't, uh, we weren't physically there seeing Jesus standing next to, I think it was what, a 70-foot lantern during a very significant festival of the Jews, where it's the, it's the festival, festival of the lights, the Feast of Tabernacles. And um, we just don't know the, like, how, how much of an impact that would have had on those people who are looking to him, looking to Jesus, who's there, and, and audibly they hear him claim that he is God. Like, we don't know the impact of it. Where you're seeing a man who's saying these things, but also he can do the impossible. It would have had a huge impact on those people. But the religious people, they hated it. And so each moment, God carefully orchestrated. He carefully mapped it out and planned it out. He, you can see that he was directing the course of history. And so... If, for the last, uh, say, three months, I guess, with COVID and all that that's happened, I've started playing chess 
like online against other people and uh, trying to try to up my skills and but the real idea is to try and condition my mind in a way that's to assess all my options before I make a move. And I, I want to do it not just so that I can become a ch better chess player, but the idea is to then put that into my own life so that I can better be able to assess things that are going on instead of just quickly moving and making a decision before I've even seen what the kind of ramifications are. Because in chess, you, wanna, you can't just look at your next move. You have to look at, say, two, three, four moves down the track before you make your move. And then, yeah, all your different options. So I don't believe that God looks at us or looks at the world like a game, like a game of chess. But I do believe that he would be brilliant at it. He would be a genius at it, right? You see, when you, you look at... Uh, our, each of our individual lives, the in intricacies of each of us, all our personality types, and yet God has taken each one of us and put us in this moment, in this specific time, for right now. And he hasn't only just done that for you, he's done that for every single person in all history. He's taken them and gone, I want you here. And not only that, I'm going to put people around you, I'm going to intertwine your destinies, and your life is just so, like, it's just so connected to so many different things that God just, he's a genius. Even, even just one very simple example, right? Mike and Sean in South Africa went to the same high school. That's right. Interestingly, both of them now have moved to another country. Not only are they in another country, they're in the same city. Not only that, they live, what, within 20, 30 minutes driving distance of each other, right? Not only that, they're in the same church. And then to go a step beyond that, now both their kids are also in the same high school. Like, how is, is that by chance? That's got to be God, surely. To just intertwine people's lives like that is just amazing. So each moment, each of these definitive statements that Jesus made of I am, it was God revealing himself to the world, but in the meantime, he was also moving the pieces. He was shifting things around, setting up the most significant event in all eternity, right? The biggest checkmate of all time, which is the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So did you find John 11? We're going to look at a story here. This is another one of these moments. Now, just for time's sake, I'm going to skip through some bits. So just bear with me. I'm going to read it, but we're, just to get the gist of the story, I'm just going to take a few of the details out. So John 11, verse 1, says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. You may have known them. From previous accounts, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So again, now you've got two stories, remember, of these people with Mary and Martha and Mary wiping his feet. So these are people that Jesus already knew and had some sort of history with. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Verse 5, 
Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. <laughs> okay. He did, but this is why. Right? And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Judea, however you say it. But Rabbi, in this verse 8, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were tried, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. And I think that's where I've heard other people say and try and work out why Jesus stayed for two days before he went. Well, that's also part of the reason. The last time they went, um, he got, they tried to stone him. But here's the next part as well. So verse 11, it says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. How did Jesus know that, he had, that Lazarus had died? It doesn't say anyone told him. So what it tells me is that the reason why Jesus stayed is because he was concerned about following the voice of the Father. He didn't just move and go on impulse. He wanted to do everything that God was speaking to him. So it wasn't like, oh, he stayed there for whatever. I don't think he said there any other reason other than he wanted to hear what God was saying. And I believe God revealed to him that Lazarus was dead. And so at that point, Jesus is like, no, nah, I have to go. Even though they tried to stone me last time, I'm going there because I want to see my friend raised. So verse 16, then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So Thomas is pretty, he's probably the comedian of the bunch of them, I guess. I like that statement. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. And verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Verse 32 when Mary reached the place where Jesus, was, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Make a note here. You've got to remember that Jesus gave up all divinity. All his supernatural power of, in and of himself as God, he laid aside. So he was 100% a human, meaning he felt and experienced everything that we do physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. He went through all the same motions that we did. And there's a few other verses which we're not going to read out, but it shows that in that place, in that moment where his friend has just died and there's people all around him who are mourning who were crying and weeping in that place he was affected by it 
it touched him, it moved him, it deeply moved him, and he also, it says that he wept. And so I just wanted to remind you, he was a man, completely a man, reliant on the Holy Spirit throughout the whole story. So then we move on, and it says, uh, verse 34, Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. And then 38, Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb, and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Verse 40, then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Verse 43, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, and his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. It goes on to say that after this, the word spread and, and the Pharisees called a meeting together. And at that point is where they begin to plot how they're going to kill Jesus. So again, it's that thing of this moment was orchestrated and mapped out by God to where he's taking another step down death row towards his crucifixion. And so Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And just today, I just simply want to point out three levels or three uh, truths that Jesus is addressing specifically with this thing is I am, the, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And so the first one is a physical resurrection. Jesus is addressing that there is a physical resurrection because we see him raise Lazarus from the dead. Where Martha asks, I know he's going to resurrect the last day, but he says right now, here and now, I am here, I am the resurrection, I am the life right now, but also in the future. So there is also, number two, an eternal resurrection. One day in the future, there's going to be a last day where we are resurrected into the into eternity. And thirdly, there's also a spiritual resurrection where he says, those who live, where is that verse? Let me just read it again. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So there's that continual living right now. We can live spiritually resurrected. So that's the third one. So, all right. So we're going to deal with number one with the physical resurrection just quickly. You know, we aren't designed to handle death very well. I don't think God wired us in a way to be able to cope with it too well. And it's, it's, I guess it's hard for us to see the whole picture of our existence, and that's part of the complication. So we don't get the whole, uh, the whole thing of our existence. At, at men's prayer on Friday night, the question came up that we were discussing was, uh, why is there suffering in the world? Why would God create a world that he knew would be so full of pain, so full of hardship? Um, it's just that, it, and it's hard for us to kind of understand that. It's really hard for us to kind of comprehend 
what God's purpose was in putting us in a place where there would be so much hard, so much pain, so much suffering. And uh, we know, though, from Scripture that God's original intention, uh, that his will, is actually that we wouldn't suffer. Right? We know that it's his will that we should never die. But the, but the reality is, is Adam ate from that forbidden tree. He ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and doing so, he introduced death into the world. And so now, sadly, some have their life stolen, some uh, through unfortunate, tragic kind of accidents, people's lives are taken from them too early. But if everyone dies, right, at their predetermined time, it means that God's will, or say, let's say, if, it, if, someone's, if it's God's will that everyone dies at that appointed time, why would he then go and command us to raise the dead? Why would Jesus have raised Lazarus at that time if it was God's will to, for people to die at a particular time? Because I've heard that lots. You probably have heard that as well, that when people die is when they're meant to die. Then why would God say, I want you, in Matthew 10, he says, I want you to go preach the gospel, heal the sick, raise the dead. It doesn't make sense, does it? So if Jesus... Uh, yeah, if it was always God's will that people die at that particular time, Jesus would never have gone there and raised Lazarus. Otherwise, he would be working against the Father's will. We know that that's not true. In John 10, it says, A thief is the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus came with the authority, with the power to release life into places of death and destruction, which includes human life. And even though this Lazarus story is a great example, there's no superior example that we have in Scripture than Jesus obviously raising from the dead. Our entire belief system is founded on the fact that Jesus rose again from the grave, not just spiritually, but physically rose from the grave. You see, if Jesus just died and uh, made the payment for our sin and then remained in that tomb for all eternity, sure, he would have paid for our sin and we would have been forgiven in that regard, but there would be no hope of victory over sin. There would be no hope of eternal life. There would be no hope of, an, of a future existence at all. So, and, and here's a big thing. Death remains more powerful than life. You would be free from punishment, but you would have no eternal life. So we know that Jesus did rise from the grave and he defeated death. He spent 50 days walking around the earth, showing his friends, his family, even strangers, talking with them, eating with them. He embraced them, even with Thomas, who thought was the funny guy. who's like, let's just go there and get killed, along with Lazarus. He even shows him physically his scars in his hands and in his feet and his side. So there was a very real physical resurrection. And there are many stories across the globe and throughout history, including recent times, of people who have been physically raised from the dead. I just want to give you a 
couple of examples. I mean, we know like Heidi Baker, where she sees hundreds of people raised from the dead, and like little children even raising people from the dead. Um, David Hogan, he came here, was it last year? And I think, I might have this wrong, but I think he was kind of saying that he'd seen 40, is it? Around 40 people that he had raised from the dead, making the joke that he'd only seen like half as many with one hand as what he'd seen with the other hand or something like that. But yeah, he's seen quite a few. But then there's also like Curry Blake. May have heard some of him. He's raised a few from the dead, including his own daughter. His first daughter died because she was born with a tumour in her tongue. And so they tried to uh, help her as, as best as she can, but I think once she was two, she eventually died. But then soon after that, his second daughter was playing around and fell out of her second story, wheel, second story window straight onto concrete headfirst and died instantly. And so he picks her up and uh, I think he said for an hour, he was just screaming, yelling, you will live and not die in the name of Jesus. You will live and not die in the name of Jesus. And eventually he gets her and puts her inside in the kitchen and he just kept pointing at her. You will live and not die. You will live and not die. And then all of a sudden, blah, she spews blood everywhere and comes back to life. But, and then they quickly rush to the hospital to get her all fixed up with all the other issues after falling out the window. But that was the first time he'd ever raised someone from the dead. So it's God's will for people to be raised from the dead. In situations where there's tragic accidents, where there's times where uh, the devil has stolen someone's life away, it is God's will that they be raised physically. And it may seem like um, it's a miracle reserved for the elite. Right? We talk about some of these people like Andrew Warmack, Curry Blake and all those sorts of people and they can seem like they're the top of the tree of all the Christians. But it's not true. Right? Romans 8 verse 11, it says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you, right? You see, the same spirit that raised Curry's daughter lives in you. The same spirit that raised uh, all the people that David Hogan has raised, the same spirit lives in you. The same spirit that raised Lazarus from the dead lives in you. And so it's not reserved for the elite because the Holy Spirit is a person who lives in every single one of us and he wants to work through you. So that's physical resurrection. The second one is this eternal resurrection. Uh, Jesus says to Martha, as I said before, that uh, do not worry, your brother will rise again. And Mary answers, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live even though they die. So he's talking about here this incredible statement. And uh, to simply, simply put it, Martha asks, will Lazarus die? Like, will he be raised now or is he going to be raised again in the future? And Jesus answers both. I am the resurrection. So I'll raise him now, but he's also going to raise again in, in the future. And so although our body may break down and can no longer house our soul, our spirit actually lives on. It never dies. 
always is going to live. A Christian cannot die. We will always live. And uh, you can look up later on. I don't have time to go through it. But 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5. And it talks about how we get a brand new body for the future. a, A body for sustainability. But this is what I want to get into here. Do you know there's something, I don't know for you, but for me, there's something refreshing and healthy about when we dwell on what heaven is going to be like. Right? I don't know if you often knew it, but I like to think of it. Thinking about what eternity is going to be like is awesome. It's something that it gives me joy about thinking it, about the, the different things. And actually the Bible encourages us to do it. You look in Colossians 3, it says, Since we have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. So set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You see, heaven is our home. It's where we're from. We're designed to live with God in eternity. That's what we're meant for. We'll look back In a hundred, you could say whatever number, you could say in a million years' time, we'll look back and see that this brief time, we will cherish this moment that we have on earth, but it is just such a brief time, which means our true purpose might be found later in eternity. I think uh, Dad said this last Sunday, and it's in the front of the calendar as well. In C.S. Lewis, he says, If I find in myself... Desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I've got a book, actually, I didn't get it out, but I just want to read out some stuff here. There's a lady called Rebecca Springer. Has anyone heard of her? Rebecca Springer. No. So she's, she's written a book, and it's called Within Heaven's Gates, and uh, I don't know the full gist of it because she doesn't explain it all, but she was quite sick in hospital for an extended period of time. And I think she might have even been in a coma. But during this time, she has what could, she could only describe as an encounter where she goes to heaven. And not just heaven for like an hour, two hours. This is like what seems like months, a long extended period of time where she's in heaven. And she's written this book about her experiences. So I just want to read out some, uh, one excerpt from, from this book. I encourage you. I, this is what I was going to ask you to do. If you want to close your eyes, because I think this is good to imagine as I'm reading it out. So what a scene beheld me as I rested upon this soft, fragrant cushion. Far beyond the limit of my vision stretched this wonderful field of perfect grass and flowers. Out of it grew equally wonderful trees whose drooping branches were laden with exquisite blossoms and fruits of many kinds. I found myself thinking of John's vision on the Isle of Padmos and the tree of life that grew in the midst of the garden bearing 12 fruits and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Beneath the trees, In many small happy groups, little children were laughing and playing. They were running around filled with joy and catching bright-winged birds that flitted in and out among them as though sharing in their sports. All through the grounds, 
Older people were walking with an air of peacefulness and happiness that made itself felt, even by me, a total stranger. All of them were clothed in spotless white, though many wore and carried clusters of beautiful flowers. As I looked at their happy faces and their spotless robes, again I thought, these are they which have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. And everywhere I looked, I saw half-hidden by the trees elegant and beautiful houses of strangely attractive architecture. I felt these must be the homes of the happy inhabitants of this enchanted place. I caught glimpses of sparkling fountains in many directions, and close to me a river flowed with water clear as crystal. The water that ran in many directions, the walks that ran in many directions through the grounds appeared to be made of pearl, spotless and pure, and bordered on either side by narrow streams of clear water running over stones of gold. The one thought that fastened itself upon me as I looked, breathless and speechless upon this scene, was purity, purity. There was no shadow of dust, no taint of decay on fruit or flower. Everything was perfect. Everything was so pure. The grass and flowers looked as though they were freshly washed by summer showers, and not a single blade was any color but the brightest of green. The air was soft and balmy, though invigorating, and instead of sunlight, there was a golden and rosy glory everywhere. It resembled the afterglow of southern sunset in midsummer. And as I drew in my breath with a, soft, with a short, quick gasp of delight, I heard my brother-in-law, who was standing beside me, say softly, Well? Looking up, I discovered that he was watching me with keen enjoyment. I had, in my great surprise and delight, wholly forgotten his presence. This is, and that's just the first couple pages. She goes on to say this, As I grew more accustomed to the heavenly life around me, I found its loveliness unfolded to me like the slow opening of a rare flower. Delightful surprises met me at every turn. A dear friend from whom I parted years ago in the earth life would come upon me unexpectedly, offering a cordial greeting. Another, perhaps greatly admired on earth, but one I had avoided from fear of unwelcome intrusion would approach me and showing their lovely soul so full of kindness that I felt regret for what I had lost. It is the Father's pleasure to make us realize that this existence is a continuation of the former life, only without its imperfections and its cares. So that was just the first couple of pages of the and the book is like, there's a hundred or so pages and the whole thing is filled with it. And it's, I encourage you, if you, you should go read it. It's a good book to kind of open your eyes up and open your imagination up to what it's going to be like. Because, you know, at the core of the gospel, I'm happy to say this, that the core of the gospel is a promise of eternal life. It is why Jesus died. Jesus died to give us this unbroken fellowship with him, an ongoing union with him for all eternity. It's one of the core points of the gospel. He, he wants us to enjoy him and enjoy each other. 
He wants us to experience the bliss of his goodness and his greatness. That's his desire for us. It's why Jesus says, it says that he, it says for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. To get into that place of union and in that place of uh, communion and fellowship with him for all, for all eternity. So I think that one of the most important questions, as we said, we've said this before, that we can ask anyone is where do you think that you're going to go when you die? It's a huge deal. So that's eternal resurrection. We'll move on now. And it kind of leads into this third section, which is spiritual resurrection. A believer goes to heaven when they die. Everyone will tell you that. We go to heaven when we die. And here's the thing. Um, When did you die? See, Adam and Eve in the garden are commanded not to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for if they do, they will surely die. But interestingly, when they ate, they didn't immediately explode into nothing. They lived for how many years? Hundreds of years. Was it 900 or not that much? 930 years. So did he die right then and there? Dying, he will die. Yeah. Look at it. I think mum read this out this morning. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. But because, verse 4, it says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then God raised us up with Christ and seated us in him in the heavenly realms in Christ. This is another one which I quite like. In Romans 6, it says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 5, it says, For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. So it seems pretty clear to me, at least spiritually, Bible says that we died. We already dead. We were dead in transgressions. We were dead in our sins when Jesus then raised us up. This is something that's already happened, that our old sinful self was crucified with Jesus. It was dead and buried in the tomb. 
So many Christians, they try to live their life sanctifying their flesh. And it gets preached to do that, to clean up your old sinful nature, your old sinful self, to hide the shame and to make, almost make sacrifices to try and appease your guilt. Even just like uh, Adam in the garden, when, when they'd eaten of the tree, they died. They did die when they ate of that tree. Spiritually, they died completely. And in that point, what did they do? They felt shame, they felt guilt, they felt the condemnation, and they worked super hard to fashion fig leaves into some sort of covering to hide their shame. And we do it the same thing, just in a different way. We do all these sorts of spiritual kind of acrobatics and, and uh, all sorts of things to try and appease the guilt that we feel in trying to do something to God to go, look how acceptable and pleasing I am. And often it gets labeled as spiritual living. You can go into bookstores all over the place and there'll be a whole aisle full labeled spiritual living and it's all about these books about self-healing, about self Self-help, really, in a lot of ways, and the 10 steps of how to be a better Christian, how to get sin out of your life so that you can be a more effective Christian. When God's desire was never for you to get out of, for you to try and clean yourself up and get rid of this old sort of sinful nature, his whole desire was to kill it. He wanted to completely kill that sinful nature in you, to remove it from you completely so that it would never have a grip over you ever again. You get these people saying, oh, I've got this angel on one shoulder and a, and a devil on the other shoulder. I need to kind of listen to that guy, all the, listen to the good one all the time and try and avoid the other one. When God's like, I don't want you to live like that. I don't want you to live in that schizophrenic kind of uh, whatever. Like, he hated that. He wants to kill it completely because he knows that the only way that you can live a resurrected life is to kill you. Because you can't be resurrected unless you're dead. And that's the whole deal of Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8. The whole thing is the gospel is that Jesus died and you died with Jesus so that when he raised up, you can be raised up with him. It was the only way that you can have eternal life. There's no other way. So he never intended for you to clean yourself up so that you don't sin anymore. He wanted to kill you completely. So the secret, as I said, to a resurrected life, the secret to a victory over sin, over guilt, over condemnation, over fear, over illness, over religion, over having to try and perform and live this holy life, is simple. And it doesn't require you to read hundreds of books of all these different steps and how to be a better Christian. Simple. Just believe the gospel. Just believe that you have uh, been crucified with Jesus, that your old self, your old sinful nature, everything that used to be is dead. It died with Jesus and that now you've been resurrected with Jesus into a totally new existence that is free from sin, that is free from death, it's free from fear, free from guilt, free from condemnation that we are permanently united with the Spirit of God and that you can never, ever die. 
This is um, Ravi Zacharias. He says this, which I've said a few times before, but I like this quote. So the Christian faith, simply stated, reminds us that our fundamental problem is not moral. Rather, our fundamental problem is spiritual. It is not that we are immoral, but that a moral life alone cannot bridge what separates us from God. Jesus does not offer to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. And it sums up the gospel so well. We go off time. I'll close with this. And I think this is a, a kind of a crucial point to make. This is right at the crux of it a little bit. Eternal life is not just some sort of pill or elixir that we can drink and then we become immortal. It's not some ticket that we can get stamped and now we get into heaven. We get into the venue. It's not, it's not like that. The key is knowing that Jesus is the resurrection, that he is the life. You see, we can define eternity as kind of being a place that we get to go and experience, but really at the core of it all, Jesus is heaven. Jesus is eternal life. He says like, all these statements that we've been looking at, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the living water that if you drink of, you will never thirst again. So he's making these statements saying that he is eternity. He is eternal life. And so without him, there is no heaven. Without him, there is no eternal life, that there is no such thing as heaven without knowing him. To go deeper into that place of eternity, to go deeper into heaven, it requires us to deepen our relationship with Jesus. To live in an experiential encounter of who he is. That's really what heaven is, is experiencing him, experiencing his heart, his goodness, his faithfulness, his greatness for us. And so, as I said, like, there's nothing to me that excites me more than the prospect of being involved in this huge thing of just eternal life. There's nothing that excites me more than thinking about what eternity is going to be like. And I think that that is godly. I think that that's a good thing, that God wants us to think like that. Like, as I said before, Jesus, he endured the cross because of the joy set before him. And the cool thing is that God not only promises us, as he says, I am the resurrection, not just now for the future, but now as well. And so God gives us this thing called the Holy Spirit, and he says it's a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. It is a down payment that we get to experience now, which guarantees eternity. So God's saying, you can experience, sure, you're going to have a, a wonderful time in eternity, but guess what? You can also experience it here and now, which is that whole thing of a spiritual resurrection, which, hasn't, which has already happened. You were already dead, and, you were, and as soon as you believed in Jesus, you were raised into that place of seated in heavenly places with him in Christ. So, yeah.
That's the spiritual resurrection. Is that all right? I think. All right. It's going to pray and then we can be done. So I thank you, Father, so much for your, for the gospel. I thank you, Jesus, that you sent, or you came and died for us, not just so that we could have a life of just absolute bliss in the future, a life of where it's unbroken fellowship, where it's just amazing, things that we can't even like imagine fully the wonder and the glory of what it's going to be like. And I thank you so much for that. But I also thank you, God, that you want us to experience some of that right now. And I just pray, Father, for each one of us here that, uh, that we would have more encounters with you, that on a daily basis, that we would learn more and more what it is to just have fellowship with you that is unbroken, some of the troubles, some of the things and the worries and cares can come in on us and can distract us. But I just pray, Father, that we would be so much more aware of your presence that those things would just begin to fall away and that our focus, as, as uh, Kevin often says for us, is that our eyes really would just be fixed on you, Jesus, that uh, we know that you are the answer that you truly are the one that we can rely on even in the most difficult of circumstances. We can look to you and we can live a life that is a life of victory, of, of a life that is a victory over sin, a life that is victory over illness, a life that is victory over, over worry, over anxiety, over depression, a life that is victory over any sort of uh, kind of complications relationally. And I just pray, Father, that for each and every single one of us here, you know exactly where we're at, some of the situations that we're going through. And I just declare that the life of God just break in in Jesus' name, that your resurrection life would come in and just bring such joy, such peace, such a sense of uh, excitement and passion again. I just pray also, Father, for, for dreams and visions, for this, if there's certain kind of... Uh, things that have been lost, things that have been forgotten, certain words of uh, just purpose and destiny. I just speak life again into those things in Jesus' name. That there will be a whole new level of just existence on a, where your glory, your goodness, and your presence would begin to filter through our life in a whole new way. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>